0: And still they go. Well, good morning to you from me. For those of you I don't know, I'm the other minister. uh, Chris, have the real joy this morning of um, opening up God's word for us as we continue our teaching series that we began uh, last weekend. We're going to be spending four weeks during January uh, thinking about the theme together of devotement, which is a word that we thought we'd made up, but we didn't. It really does exist, uh, which means something between the fusion of commitment and being uh, devoted. Last weekend, we first off thought about the call, and it's a call to remember, uh, a call to remember specifically the death of Jesus. Uh, And if you're with us, you'll remember that I said we should remember thinkingly that we should participate totally, and that we should t- share togetherly uh, with devotion. Well, my promise to you this weekend is I won't make up any more words, I promise. Uh, I re- realize that's a really terrible thing to do, uh, and for the English purist who I offended last weekend, I do uh, most uh, <laughs> uh, uh, uh apologize. So this morning we get to to look at an intriguing little story that's captured in John's gospel in chapter 12. Uh, In fact, the same story is captured in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel as well. It's the story of Mary anointing the feet of Jesus with oil or with perfume. You probably know the story. Now, before we open up our scripture reading together, I want to give a quick bit of context because this is a really significant moment in Jesus' ministry John chapter 12 marks, if you like, the end of the more public part of Jesus' ministry and enters into what we might call the more private part. John chapter 11 verse 54 says says this, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness where he stayed with his disciples. Up to this point, up to John chapter 11, after John the Baptist... You'll remember at the beginning of John's gospel, announced the coming of Jesus. Look, here is the Lamb of God. Here is the one who takes away the sin of the world. After that, Jesus' ministry was non-stop. It was relentless. It was public. Even when Jesus went off to try and find some R&R, people still pursued him and found him. It's a little bit like living in our house. When I try to hide in the cupboard, uh, I find that the children are already there. And that's the story. As we enter into John chapter 12, the tone changes. All of a sudden, from all the excitement of Jesus' ministry, things become more reflective. Things become more sobering as Jesus enters into this week-long, private stage of his ministry before his ministry, earthly ministry, eventually ends in death. But of course, as we remembered last weekend, but two in resurrection. In John chapter 11, the, the chapter before the one we're in today, Lazarus has died Uh, Jesus travels to Lazarus' home, he takes his time in Bethany, and then Jesus declares those great words of the Christian faith that we hear so often at funerals, I mean actually these are words for every day, for I am the resurrection of the life, whoever believes in me will live even though we die. John chapter 11 verse 35, the shortest verse in scripture which tells us so much about the heart of Jesus. Verse 35, Jesus wept, that's all it says, Jesus wept. And then Jesus calls this dead man out of his grave, a grave alive, Lazarus, come out, and then John chapter 12 tells us what happens next. All of this is happening six days before the Passover celebrations, which we were thinking about last weekend. So if you've got a Bible, it'd be great if you could uh, turn to John chapter 12 or switch on your devices. Uh, I'm going to read from verses 1 through 2, 11. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with Jesus. And then Mary took about half a liter of pure nard and expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will not always have the poor among you. Um, You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out uh, that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So today we're thinking about this call. It's a biblical call, a call to worship, the call to worship. First off, let me begin by trying to define worship by telling you what worship is not. Uh, Worship is not singing songs, although it might include the singing of songs. Worship is not what we're doing together now here in person or online, although of course it might include the gathering together on a Sunday morning or whenever we do that during the week. Worship is absolutely not about our liturgies, it's not about our confessions, it's not about the traditions that we hold dear in our lives. Worship is not even those mountaintop experiences that we might occasionally have on the journey of faith, although of course it could include all of those things. Worship is not about you and it is not about me. Well, why do I say all of that? I say all of that to begin with because I think churches stumble a lot on this theme of worship. It's been the cause of too many church splits. Far too many church denominations have begun because of debates about worship. If you talk to people, even in this room today, there'll be a lot of opinions about what worship is. People will tell you whether worship was good or whether it was bad, whether it excited them or it didn't excite them. I cannot tell you how many people have joined the churches I've led and also left the churches I've led because of their corporate worship experience. But worship actually at the bottom line is not about touching us. Worship is about touching God. I imagine some conversations that happen an awful lot on a Sunday lunchtime, and I think they're conversations that really sadden the heart of God. I imagine several conversations happening around dinner tables today, probably around 12.30 or 1 o'clock, and the same refrain will be voiced at those dinner tables. Do you know what? I didn't get anything out of that today. I don't know why we bothered going. I didn't get anything out of the sermon. What on earth were they going on about? I didn't get anything out of the singing today. Wow, the worship group were ragged. And do you know I have a sense? I wasn't speaking about our worship group, clearly. (laughs) know I have a sense that sentences like that are dry rot in the church family they're dry rot in a church family why because they utterly miss the point of what worship is and who worship is for you see worship was never ever supposed to be about you and it was supposed to never be about me worship is something that we give it's not something that we take If my focus is on myself, when I enter into a church building for corporate worship, if it's about having my needs met and about hearing a sermon that blesses me, if it's about me being lifted up with the singing, then we've moved about as far away as we possibly can from a biblical concept of worship. And I have to be honest and admit, I go to that place far too often myself. I too often will sit around the dinner table at one o'clock and say how terrible the sermon was, and it was me that preached it. Now, before anyone throws any stones at me, it needs to be said that when we worship, of course, some of those things that we might say are slightly self-centered actually are a byproduct of our worshiping. But here's the thing, they were never supposed to be the primary focus, and too sadly, they have become the primary focus. It's all about me, Jesus. All this is for me, as if you should do things my way. I blessed the first service in song with that, but I thought I'd spare you. Warren Wisby once said this, if you worship because it pays, it will not pay. I think that's brilliant. If you worship because your worship pays, it will not pay. It will leave you bankrupt. So if all of that is not worship, how can we define worship? Well, a few decades ago in my previous church, I attempted to write a definition of worship. Now, I don't think this is perfect, but it's where I landed. Worship is offering the best of who I am in response to who God is. Now, in these early days, I actually wrote the best of who I am. I, I think I can drop that, actually. Worship is offering who I am in response to who God is. Now, worship is incredibly difficult to define. If you're one of our, in one of our small groups, you can have a go at it this week in your small groups. Come up with a definition and see if you can do better than mine. But what we discover in our Bible reading this morning is worship. We see worship happening. If we can't define it, we can surely see it, and we see that in our story this morning. And interestingly in our story, there's not a single worship song that's been sung, and there's not a single sermon that gets critiqued. Did you notice that? But what we can see is the heart response of a woman to Jesus. We see a heart response of a, of a woman to who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's about to do as he faces the cross on Calvary. In fact, maybe that's a better definition of worship. Worship is our heart response to who Jesus is and what he's done. Worship is our heart response to who Jesus is and what he has done. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 actually says a very similar thing. He says that offering ourselves as living sacrifices is our spiritual act of worship. If you want to see worship, see somebody offering themselves as a living sacrifice, In other words, take your everyday life, your ordinary life, your sleeping, your eating, your going to work, your walking around, even your coming to church, and place all of that before God as an offering. That surely is worship. The heart of worship begins from the heart, is what Paul is saying in that text, Anyway, having said all of that, and I think it was quite important to say that given our theme this morning, I'd love for us to take a look at this story, this interaction between Mary and Jesus to see what the application might be for us today. Now before I get into all that about Mary, I want to make just two quick aside observations about two other characters in the story because I think we have something to learn from them as well in the form of Martha and of Lazarus. Martha in verse 2 is doing what Martha does best. Martha is serving. Once again, we find Mary busy pottering around behind the scenes doing all of the work whilst others are eating dinner or sitting around at the table with Jesus. Now, you might recall that Luke tells another story about Martha, and in that story, Martha is moaning. She's whinging, she's going on at Jesus, Jesus, don't you care that my sister Mary has left me to do all the work by myself? Would you please tell me, tell her to help me? And Jesus, in response, gives her a gentle rebuke, Martha, you're worried and you're upset about so many things. Martha, would you just chill out? And Martha, your attitude stinks, is what Jesus could have said in the Brockway translation of the Bible, but what a contrast we find today where we discover Martha serving with a totally different attitude. And I think what we learn from this story in, in the person of Martha is that to be a servant, to be one, someone that meets the needs of others can in and of itself be an act of worship. But the difference, But what makes the difference between an act which is pleasing to Jesus and that which isn't is the attitude by which it's done. We see that in the story of Martha. And I think there's a sense in the story as well today that Martha's ministry of service was enabling the different ministry of others. And I want to stop and celebrate that in the life of CBC. All those people who serve with such amazing attitude behind the scenes so that others can deliver different forms of ministry. And then there's Lazarus. Now, his worship is is witness He uh, was a first-person witness, literally, to the miracle-working power of Jesus. He's living proof of what Jesus is able to do in a person's life. But what's really interesting about Lazarus is he doesn't make the focus of attention in this story himself. He makes the center of attention Jesus. Do you know what I mean? I guess Lazarus could have said to everyone gathering around, look at me, I'm the one who Jesus healed. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. Check me out, touch me, poke me, pull me. Would you like my autograph? But he doesn't. He simply signposts people towards Jesus. What's intriguing to me is that the scriptures never ever record Lazarus saying a single word, and yet he is still a witness to Jesus. It's what Jesus has done in his life that makes him a witness. So two really important aside comments about ways we can worship through right-hearted service, but also by being a witness, even if we never speak, a witness, a signpost to Jesus. And then we have Mary. Sometimes at home, uh, myself and my kids uh, do those "Where's Wally" books. Do you know what I mean? Have you ever tried doing "Where's Wally" on an audio book? Nope. <laughs> nope. 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 Yes, it goes something like that. But Mary's no Wally, is she? Where do we find Wally? We find, uh, Wally, Wally, where do we find Mary? We, we find Mary where she always is. She's so easy to find. And what you notice about Mary is that she is always at the feet of Jesus. In Mary, we see the heart response of a true worshiper. Mary is somebody who's content to be at the feet of Jesus and to stay there. And My heart cry this morning, maybe it's yours too, is, Lord, would you make my heart more like Mary's? Lord, would you give me the discipline, the ability to stay at your feet? Because, Lord, I get so easily distracted and I wander off over to other things that somehow seem more interesting. But it's really obvious, isn't it, from our scripture reading, that Jesus cares about the heart of worshippers. In fact, that's what makes the difference between a good worshipper and a bad worshipper. It's our heart response, it's our heart attitude. So three really quick things that I think Mary can teach us today. And the first is this, is Mary teaches us that we should be smelly worshippers. Did you notice in our scripture reading that um, the Bible tells us that Mary took a, a pint of an expensive perfume and she poured it all over the feet of Jesus? Well, so what, you might think. But of course, Judas points out the problem here. This was no cheap odor to toilet. This was, uh, this was Mary spilling a massive value, a whole year's wages at the feet of Jesus. What's the average salary in the UK? Well, I think at the moment it's reported to be somewhere around £25,000. While here in this moment, Mary is pouring £25,000 over the feet of Jesus, and then she lets her hair down and wipes his feet with it. Now, this perfume would have probably come from India, uh, which is why it was so expensive, probably from the slopes of the Himalayan mountains. And can you imagine the smell? The whole of the house must have just been filled with this amazing aroma of 25,000 pounds worth of perfume. This is a moment of worship. This is not a wasteful moment. This is a, a worshipful moment. A moment of worship where the fragrance of Jesus fills the whole of the house. I really love this image. When a worshiper pours their heart out, there's this attractive, there's this contagious smell which starts to fill the room. You can imagine in the day, can't you, that this would have been a really sweet, refreshing smell. What a contrast to the hot, arid, dry smell of the streets that were outside. And here in the house, we just smell the fragrance of this perfume filling it. I absolutely love being around people who respond to Jesus with a heart of worship because responding in worship is probably one of the most attractive things that there is about a follower of Jesus. Do you know what I mean? When you see somebody worshiping from their heart, it really is contagious. People come along and they say, wow, they must really love Jesus. I so want to get to know him so that I can respond in the way that they're responding. The Apostle Paul said a similar thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This is from the message. It says, In Jesus, God leads us from place to place in one perpetual victory parade. Through us, he brings the knowledge of Christ. Everywhere we go, people breathe in the exquisite fragrance. Isn't that lovely? Everywhere we go, we breathe in, people breathe in the exquisite fragrance. Because of Christ, we give off a sweet scent rising to God, which is recognized by those on the way to salvation, an aroma redolent with life. No idea what redolent means, but it sounds good. An aroma redolent with life. That's what happens when people worship from their hearts. And the church needs smelly worshipers. Our love for Jesus ought to be spilling out of us so that others can smell it, so that others are aware of it. And I simply want to challenge us this morning as we enter into this new year, would you please add your smell to our worship? Well, maybe fragrance was a better word to use. Would you please please add your fragrance, the fragrance of Jesus to this place in your heart response to him? In the words of Graham Kendrick, may the fragrance of Jesus fill this place. Lovely fragrance of Jesus rising from the sacrifice of lives laid down. You see, it's about what we give. It's not about what we take. Of lives laid down in adoration. There's nothing more attractive than genuine worship. So would you be a smelly worshiper for Jesus? And then secondly, I think we see in this story that we should respond to our hearts and not to our critics. In verse 4 of our scripture reading, I don't know if you saw it, there's suddenly a change of mood at this dinner party, and suddenly the dinner party becomes really tense. Some people start shaking their heads in shock and disbelief at what Mary is doing over in the corner. They watch, and Mary shakes out the last few drops of this perfume out of the flask, and she then unties her long, flowing hair like mine, and then she gently stoops, shush, she gently... She gently stoops down and she wipes the feet of Jesus. But then in this moment, this shock silence is broken by the sound of murmuring. And then the murmuring swells into a tirade of angry words from very predictable lips. Why all of this waste? How dare you? Why was this fragrant perfume not sold and £25,000 given to the poor? And I find myself wondering, what would I have done? What would I have done if I was there and Mary was over there with Jesus and she starts pouring out all of this perfume? What would I have said? I think I probably would have said, what a waste. 25,000 pounds, Mary, do you know how many costas that would have brought me? (laughs) 25 grand, Mary, down the drain. What a waste. You see, without understanding why Mary did what she did in that moment and then hearing the affirmation of Jesus, which we can do, in our scriptures, I have a sense I might well have joined the chorus of disapproval. I'd have been spouting off all the things that could have been done with that precious commodity, all the sick people that could have been made well, the homeless people that could have been rehoused. So many things you can do with 25 grand. But two, I find myself thinking, what would I do if I was Mary in this moment? What if I could find myself at the feet of Jesus, and I was the one that was sloshing the perfume around at Jesus' feet, I wonder, would I have stopped as soon as my critics started to voice their concerns? Again, without the affirmation of Jesus, I have a horrible feeling. I might have at least become more restricted in that act of worship. But verse 7 is so brilliant. Jesus says, look, leave her alone. Leave her alone. She's anticipating and honoring the day of my burial. You're always going to have the poor with you, but you're not always going to have me. And Mary in this story shows the heart of a true worshiper. And what makes her gifts and her worship so beautiful is that it was so costly. Do you remember the story of the widow's mite? What did Jesus say? Well, Jesus looked up. He saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw this poor widow put in two very small copper coins. And he says this. The plain truth is that this widow has given by far the largest offering today. All others made offerings that they'll never miss. But she gave extravagantly what she could not afford She gave her all. You see, God takes notice when we give things that are costly. 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24, I will not sacrifice anything to the Lord that costs me nothing. You see, the bottom line is this, is God really isn't interested in our money, but he wants you and he wants me, he wants us, and that's costly. Romans 12, verse 1, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That in and of itself is an act of worship. Now, of course, Judas didn't get this, but in truth, nor did the other disciples. You discover that in the other gospel accounts of this same story. They joined in with the complaint that Judas was making. And the reality is, is that people won't always understand when we give something that costs us a lot to God, but that doesn't stop us from worshiping and it shouldn't stop us from worshiping. Mary didn't stop worshipping lavishly. She listened to her heart. She didn't listen to her critics, and it thrilled the heart of Jesus. And, you know, I feel really challenged by that, by the example of Mary to worship without the restrictive chains of approval of other people. Maybe today's the day to let those chains clunk to the floor and say, do you know what, I don't care what other people think about me. As I worship God, I'm going to worship him from my heart and not listen to my critics. And then thirdly, I think we learn from Mary the challenge to invest, to spend time at the toes or at the feet of Jesus. You see, there's something in this story that I find so interesting. There's something in Mary that goes deeper than what we immediately might see in the story. Mary seems to have this deeper sense, doesn't she? That Jesus goes on to affirm of what was going to be happening in his life in the days that were ahead. She seems to sense something that the other disciples just aren't seeing. They're busy complaining. She's busy prophetically acting out this this spilling of the perfume, which should have been saved for the day of Jesus' death, but she's doing it here in this day, six days early. Mary seemed to know what was coming up in the life of Jesus. You see, the pouring out of this perfume, as Jesus affirms, was a prophetic act. In this moment, in a sense, Mary was preparing the body of Jesus ready for death before the day that he'd even died, some days ahead that were yet to come. This is an act of worship. It's a prophetic act of worship. It's no wonder in this moment, is it, that Jesus shushes her critics. Somehow in this moment, Mary had a deeper, a greater spiritual insight than the other disciples. And I asked myself, why is that? And I think the answer is in the text, and Luke affirms this in chapter 10, verse 39 of his gospel. He says the reason Mary was in that place is because she sat listening to every word that Jesus taught her. You see, that's how I think we get to the place where we discover a deeper heart connection, where we discover more of the things of God. We need to invest in the feet of Jesus. We need to spend time worshipping at his feet my sense is the more time that we spend there the deeper our heart connection we m- will go and just even maybe we'll be used prophetically like mary was by jesus worship is not about us it never was about us there's a challenge in our text to be a smelly worshipper there's a challenge to respond to our hearts and not to listen to the critics or the concerns of others who are sat around us. There's a challenge for us to spend time at the feet of Jesus. And if we're going to spend time at his feet, then we need to bow down. We need to bow down. Can I encourage you to stand with me? We're going to sing a song. And actually, this is more than a song. It's a prayer. Let's stand. It's a declaration that says, Jesus... This is about more than singing if I'm going to offer you something that will bless your heart then it's going to be costly I'm going to be offering myself that's the thing of greatest worth and I want us to sing this this morning as a prayer a prayer individually but a prayer together as a church community as a family as we head into 2022 when the music fades and all is stripped away I simply come
1: When the The music music fades, fades, all is stripped away.
0: For our narrow, our sometimes pathetic definitions of worship. We're sorry, Lord, for the things that we've too often made worship. Defining it as only being about a song, only being about a prayer, only being about sharing in communion, only listening to and then perhaps critiquing excessively a sermon or our worship experience. Lord, we're sorry. Lord, thank you for your call to us, your call to come back to the heart of worship. And Lord, we want to pray for for ourselves both individually and together as a church family that, Lord, we would never strip the heart out of worship. Lord, just in these moments, we offer to you our hearts this morning and say, Lord, keep us heart connected to you.